for us until this only and eternal Son of God, in his unfathomable goodness and mercy on our misery and wretchedness, came from heaven to help us. So a beautiful statement there of uh, not only the person of Christ Jesus, but also then his work. Scare writes, the doctrine of the pre-existence of the Son of God, which belongs to a discussion of the doctrine of the Trinity, is the presupposition for a discussion of the Incarnation. So we've talked at some length, uh, although maybe in not much detail, about the intersection between Christology and the Trinity. Namely, when you refer to Christ as being um, true God, you're necessarily making a Trinitarian statement as well, that this Christ is true God, and then by extension, of course, we confess that the Holy Spirit is true God, the Father is true God, and yet not three gods, but one God. And so we have uh, one God in these three persons, the first person, the Father, the second person, the Son, and the third person, the Holy Spirit. And an easy way to remember this is both the Apostles and the Nicene Creed are broken into three different articles, each article confessing the, the, one of the three persons and work ascribed to them. Okay, then in taking Christology, we're taking that second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and we're seeing him uh, enfleshed, assuming into himself the human nature, and now we're in the mode of Christology. But, but these two doctrines do connect and touch. Scare continues, in the 16th century, Christ's preexistence was not at issue in the controversies among the Lutherans, Reformed, and Roman Catholics. Although the preexistence is not dealt with at length by the Lutheran confessions, which more often speak of the Son of God taking on human flesh, it was an issue at the time of the Apostles' Creed, and even more so at the time of the Council of Nicaea, which included a statement about Christ's pre-existence in the first major section of its second article, and appears in our Nicene Creed, where it is said of Jesus that he was, quote, begotten of his Father before all ages, end quote. So, as Scare is pointing out, presuppositional to Christology is this point that the Son of God is divine and eternal. And if there's going to be a, dif a disagreement on that presupposition, immediately there's going to be a, a Christological problem, a heresy, a, a major divergence. This is really where Christology begins. Um, I, and, and to use this, the categories that Scare has introduced, it's where it really begins from above, if you will, just with the simple pr the revelation of the Son of God and then the theological presupposition that this is the Son of God, begotten of his Father before all ages. Right? And then what, is, what remains then is a description of, of what that word begotten means. Because it doesn't mean... Um, that in eternity there was the Father and no Son. Okay. If there was a time when the Son was not, we have unwittingly fallen into Arianism. So we're talking about the, uh, the, begot uh, um, the Son who is begotten of his Father before all ages and thus in eternity, which then by definition means he's eternal. Okay. So this is, this is something, you know, it's just a basic kind of principle, although 
we frequently, I think, are, are a little loose with our language and it lends itself to confusion when we talk about eternity, for example. If we're going to talk about eternity proper, which is outside of all time and all space, to exist in eternity as such is to be God. And thus, if the Son exists in eternity, before all worlds, outside of all worlds, then he eternally exists. In eternity, there is no beginning or end. There just is. And this is where the misunderstanding is, I think, and, and maybe the looseness of our language sometimes lends itself to this. Human beings don't ever blast off into this eternity. To, to be in eternity proper would be to become God. It would be to know all things, to see all things, to be entirely outside of time and space. That's frankly impossible for a creature to do. So when we talk about eternity, we necessarily mean it, you know, that we will be inheritors of eternity or receive eternal life or that kind of, that kind of language. We really mean within time and space of one way, shape, or form, within creation as creatures in one way, shape, or form. Um, that, you know, we, can, we frequently think of it linearly, and that's fine enough in our creaturely mode and manner. Um, you know, there, we were born and came into existence, we'll die, We'll be in paradise with the Lord. We'll be raised in our bodies. We'll inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And that will go on, you know, again, just simply speaking, linearly uh, into eternity. And thus we're inheritors of eternity and eternal life. And that's a fair enough and simple enough uh, conception of it. And, you know, one we, we certainly want to keep in mind. But to simply say that... Uh, again, using the language of the Nicene Creed, begotten of his Father before all ages, is actually to confess that he's God and actually to confess that he has no beginning in that sense. Right? Because God is without beginning. There is no such thing as beginning if you're in eternity. All right? So then let's pick up where, uh, where we left off with scare. If our knowledge of Jesus is restricted only to what is able to be known according to categories of history, then the early church's concern for his pre-existence is understood to be a later development of doctrine and not as part of the original proclamation of Jesus or the apostles. Okay, in other words, if you try to do Christology from below, as so many post-enlightenment theologians attempt to do, and you reject the presupposition that, he, that um, the Son is begotten of his Father before all ages, and you just begin with, um, as Scare puts it, the, uh, the history, the categories of history, then you have to simply start with Jesus as a man. And then I think the inevitable conclusion is that these attributes of his divinity are simply attributed to him um, by way of development of doctrine or by way of uh, the church proclaiming it to be so, etc. Okay, but that's, that's sort of an upside-down way of, of doing theology, and it certainly is not the biblical or apostolic way of doing theology. All right. Um, any questions or anything on that? We're all right. Yes. Yes. Didn't Scare say that in the first chapter that it was better to start out from below rather than above, or is that in this discussions? I think I think that's a good question. So the so the question was, well, 
didn't scare already set up in the first two chapters that he's going to be doing a Christology by below. Um, so what's he doing here? And I th to answer your question very simply, yes, he did. I think that what he would say is you can't do a Christology from below that um, in such a way that it immediately, like your, your presupposition is this historical figure and what can be known about him historically to the exclusion of all else. If that's your presupposition, your starting point, well, no wonder you're going to end up concluding that he isn't divine, that this was attributed to him by the later church, right? Uh, so I think that I think that what scare means by below is you start with the scriptures, you start with the historicity of Christ, you start with the revelation of who he is given by himself and his apostles, and there you come to this divinity um, that is codified later in the Nicene Creed, begotten of his father before all ages, for example. Yeah. Okay, so on to then the next paragraph, bottom of page 21. The Arian controversy in the 4th century included a discussion of the meaning of the Son of God's pre-existence. Uh, Arius, you might recall from the earlier chapters, is kind of the arch-heretic, the first and foundational and major Christological heretic, followed by uh, Nestorius and, and uh, Eutyches. Arius denied that the Son of God was eternal and instead taught that he was created, but before earthly time began. All right, well, we talked just a moment ago how that's really not possible, but this was Arius's construction. So in, in other words, again, this phrase, there was a time when Christ was not, or there was a time when the Son was not, that would be orthodox in the view of Arius, which, of course, is heretical in the view of the small-c Catholic Church. Continuing right after the semicolon, the sun was pre-existent to the creation of everything or everything else, but could not be said to be eternal. Consequently, the Son of God had no knowledge of God essentially and was capable of change and therefore capable of sin. Against the view of Arius, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD affirmed that the Son was begotten before the ages. This quote-unquote begottenness did not involve a creation, but an eternal sharing of God's essence, hence the, hence the term homoousius. Now, okay, there's a bit to unpack here, but you recall from the earlier chapters the distinction between homoousius and homoousius, one of these places in theology where one letter uh, makes a big difference. Homoousius would be to confess that he is of like substance with the Father. Okay? Homoousius is to confess he is of one substance with the Father. And, of course, you recognize that language, so you see which is right and true according to the Scriptures. He is Homoousius, he is one substance with the Father. Okay, now, if he is one substance with the Father, kind of working backwards from, from Scare's uh, line of logic here, then that means that you know, we need to understand his begottenness. Right? And what's going to follow, of course, in the next paragraph, so I won't labor too heavily here, is 
a, a treatment of this very thing. The language of begottenness comes from the Greek monogenes. You can hear mono, okay, um, only, is how that's translated. And then genes, you can hear there the root of gen, genesis, um, beginning, birthed, that kind of thing. So the only begotten. And, and then what does that mean? Well, that's a, we'll get into it exegetically in a minute, but to say that he is the only begotten does not mean that he is created by the Father. Okay, that's Arius' position, that only begotten means that he is created by the Father. Not created by the Father, but as Scare points to the Council of Nicaea, as the Council of Nicaea affirms, the Son was begotten before the ages, but this begottenness did not involve a creation, but an eternal sharing of God's essence. So again, I know that this is a little bit simplistic, but this is the way I kind of grasp a hold of it. Augustine I, somewhere uses the example of a, uh, the trunk of a tree and a branch coming out of it. And when you think linearly, when you think in time and space, you think, of course, there's the seed, and from the seed grows the trunk, and from the trunk grows the branch, and it takes place, you know, one, two, three, sequentially in time, chronologically. Don't think of it like that. Think of the trunk and the branch existing for all eternity. Okay. Now, does the, does the branch come from, if you will, the trunk? Yes. Okay. But does it come from it in such a way that the trunk ever existed and the branch not? No. This is an eternal trunk and branch. And when we're describing begottenness, we're describing that relationship that connects the two. Okay. Um, and that's unique Christological language. To use other language, ends up, you end up falling into usually some kind of error because you see this, the sim, symbolic component of logic, or excuse me, of language, the symbolic component of language, and how uh, the analogies kind of fall apart. This is very technical, very specific language um, that we use in order to preclude the errors of Arianism. So this is where you can see that there's a very early, uh, it's, uh, it's very early in Christian uh, history where technical language becomes of the utmost importance. That's the thing. And so when we're describing monogenes, him being only begotten, we're describing this relationship to the Father, it's analogous to a relationship between a trunk and a branch, Okay, only that trunk and branch exist for all eternity. There's never a time when the branch is not. All right. Now let's take it. Let's take a, a less conceptual approach and and a and an approach more from the language itself. And here we will we will spend some time getting into the scriptures uh, to see what the scriptures themselves teach in this regard. So second paragraph, or excuse me, first full paragraph, then on page 22. The Apostles' Creed does not include as long a section on the pre-existence of Jesus as does the Nicene Creed. It focuses more attention on the life of Christ, which began at his conception, but does not, or excuse me, which began at his conception, but does identify Jesus as monogenes, a term borrowed from John's Gospel. Monogenes is best understood as meaning unique 
or the only one of its kind. Okay, so he comes from the Father, you know, and again, you can hardly speak without using the technical language. He comes from the Father, he proceeds from the Father, but I don't mean those in technical ways, I just mean those in generic ways. He comes from the Father, he proceeds from the Father, he is, he is born of the Father in this specific way, okay, uniquely, the only one of its kind. Okay? So when we call ourselves sons of God, or when the scriptures call us sons of God, it means something different when Jesus is the Son of God. He is the only begotten because he is uh, begotten of the Father before all worlds. We are not begotten of the Father such that we are begotten of him before all worlds. We are begotten of him in this world through the waters of holy baptism, you see. And so um, the difference in which we are sons of God and the difference in which Jesus is a Son of God quite vast, quite distinct. So when we refer to Jesus then as the monogenes, as the only begotten, this is why Scare says it means more like unique or only one of its kind, you see. He is the only son of God in that sense. He is the only one to be begotten of God in this specific sense, that is, before all worlds. Okay, let's pick back up where we left off. For example, Scare writes in Luke 7:12, the son of the widow of Nain is described as monogenes huios, the only begotten son. And the daughter of Jairus is also described with the same term. The traditional phrase, the only begotten son of God, is somewhat redundant since a son is by very nature begotten. Therefore, the phrase is meant to emphasize the absolutely unique relationship the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, has with the first person, the Father. And again, I just gave a very brief description of that moments ago. So let's just press on. And here we'll get into the scriptures just a bit. John describes, and here a reference to John 1.1, through verses 14 and including verse 18. The Word, John describes the Word as one who lived with God before the world's creation, who shares in the Father's being, and who was the agent by which the world was created. This logos, and that's, the, that's translated as Word, we're going to see this in a minute when we open up John's Gospel, the prologue. This Logos, this Word, is the only begotten from the Father and is himself called monogenes theos haon aiston kopon tu patros. That is the only begotten, uh, the only begotten God, the one who is in the bosom of the Father. And that's reference to John 1.18. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and pause there because that's the last treatment or the last reference rather to the, to the prologue. So let's just open up to John. And I've got, I just happened to grab the New King James Version. So that's what I'm working from today. If, you're, uh, if your version is different, I apologize for that. We'll do the best we can. <clears throat>
All right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, and again, that's Logos. So this is this is really, in a sense, if you're looking for a proof text or a or a birthplace of Trinitarian theology, you can't go wrong here. I mean, you could look at a lot of other places too. You don't have to wait for John's Gospel to reveal this. Uh, there are many other places you could look, and including, frankly, Genesis one, which John is clearly playing with. Um, Genesis begins in the beginning, and John's Gospel begins in the beginning. So, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, he's with God, but he's distinct from God, right? He isn't identical to God, he's with God. Um, and yet, he is God. He is, in fact, God. And so, that's exactly what we're describing when we say God, one God, um, he was God, and three persons, he was with God. You see? Okay. Um, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So we see that he is doing the divine creativity, uh, creative activity, and it's being done uh, through him. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not either comprehend or overcome it. Okay. And then uh, verse 6, let's just carry on since Scare quotes this whole section. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. <clears throat> he, is not the, uh, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, <clears throat> and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then that takes us through 14, and then verse 18, Scare also referenced. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten, that's the monogenes, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten uh, God who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him, made him know, exegeted him is a more literal translation. Okay, so what you can see then from this text is that clearly um, the, the Logos is with God um, and was God. And through the Logos, through this word, all things were made. And isn't that exactly as Genesis is? God said, let there be, and there was. And so it's through the word that all things are made. And then as we, as we read, um, this word becomes incarnate. This world comes down uh, to the earth in, in the person of Jesus. And this person gives us new birth. This person becomes uh, flesh. This Logos, I should say, gives us new birth. This Logos gives us... Um, takes on flesh and gives himself to us as flesh. So 
all of that packed in, and, and I think you can see then that this theology that Scare has been uh, espousing and, and taking us back to the ancient church and its confession of this theology is thoroughly biblical, thoroughly apostolic. All right, any thoughts you have on that before we move on? Okay, let's read a little further in Scare and pick up the next reference in John's Gospel. Throughout his Gospel, John makes mention of Jesus' pre-existence. John reports Jesus' claim that he existed before Abraham, with reference to John chapter 8, verse 53. So, we'll just simply thumb forward a few pages and see there John 8, 53 reads as follows. They asked Jesus, Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, Hmm. And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Which that's, you know, scare gives us 53. Really, it's, it's this whole section. I had better read it just to get the sense across in case you're not looking at your Bible at home. So the Jews, uh, in verse 48, there's this conversation that's ongoing. They answer him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So they're accusing Jesus of being a heretic, being unclean, and having a demon. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Amen, amen, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not, do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. It continues, Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. And that's the ego I me. So, before Abraham was, I am. We should fix uh, Scare's reference there probably to 59 instead of 53. So, let's not lose the point though. John, throughout his gospel, John makes mention of Jesus' pre-existence. And here's Jesus himself confessing his pre-existence before Abraham was, I am. Okay. Scare continues, and that he is one with his father, and that's John 10.30, maybe, we'll see. Yeah. And Jesus, again, um, is discoursing, in this case, about his, uh, with, yeah, with the Pharisees. They say, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. 
Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Okay, so there's, uh, you know, another, in, in the context of John's theology, another example of the preexistence of Christ. Continuing with scare, Jesus says that the Son exists in the Father, just as the Father exists in the Son, reference to John 17, 21. So we'll take a look at that. John 17, 21. And Jesus is uh, in the middle of his high priestly prayer, so-called, on the night when he's betrayed, the end of uh, the great upper room section of, of John. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Scare continues. And that the Father and the Son perform the same works. Okay, well, we already got a flavor for that in John 8, but we may as well go back and look at it again. So, in other words, um, the Father exists in the Son and the Son exists in the Father. That's the point of John 17. So they have a, this, this ontological relationship, and then, in, and then they do the same works. So the John chapter 5, John chapter 5, starting at verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. And for our purposes, I think that that's quite sufficient. Okay, so we see, we see then from John's Gospel, really, as the source of this theology um, of Nicaea, of Chalcedon, and then, you know, way later down the line, uh, the Lutheran Church. All right, any thoughts there? So when we, uh, just to recap, when we talk about Jesus as the only begotten Son of the Father, we really mean the unique Son of the Father, the Son of the Father who existed before all worlds, the Son of the Father who is true God, um, who in taking on human flesh or um, in assuming human nature um, is then true God and true man, not two persons but one person. All right? Um, hmm, let's see. Okay, bottom of 22. John is not the only New Testament author to write about the pre-existence of Jesus. St. Paul also makes mention of the Son's pre-existence. In Galatians, Paul makes it clear that, quote, God sent forth his Son, end quote, and reference to Galatians 4, 6. So God sent forth his son. The context there is obviously for us and for our salvation. So this is clearly a reference to the pre-existence 
of, of Christ, and that's all Scare's trying to demonstrate with this verse. He continues, nor is the Son's pre-existence from, uh, absent from Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus is identified as being God himself. His birth fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that there would be one born of a virgin called God with us. The reference there to uh, Isaiah 7.14 and then to Matthew 1.21 where Jesus is called this very thing. Of course, Emmanuel is, is how that is. Emmanuel is God with us. And so that's plainly a confession that Jesus is God and that this little baby who has come in our midst, this is God with us. Matthew relates Jesus' words that only he and the Father know each other perfectly. That's a reference to Matthew eleven twenty seven. When Jesus called himself God's Son, a reference to Matthew twenty six twenty five, and also Mark sixteen. He was charged with blasphemy precisely because such a claim was viewed as uh, one to equality with God and as such an existence prior to his human existence. Okay, so Jesus in claiming to be God's son uh, in this unique way, as we've seen in the biblical context, it was not lost upon his adversaries that he was claiming to be equal to God that he was claiming, in fact, to be God. And that's really ultimately why they charged him with blasphemy and wanted to put him to death. <clears throat> Scare. Yes. Yeah, please. So, the, and the connection there is the phrase, I am. Uh, the, I'm sorry. The, the connection is I am, the phrase. Back in John's, yes, back in John's gospel, the connection is I am. And, yeah, so before Abraham was, I am, that in and of itself is, is quite clear. I mean, even if you translated that, like, I mean, no matter how you translate that ego, I, me, which sometimes um, English translations translate that very limply, as if Jesus is simply saying, I am he, right? Okay. That's, not the, that's not the sense at all, biblically speaking. This, this harkens back to Exodus 3.14, where uh, Moses is before the burning bush and he asks who God is. And remember, God says, I am that I am. In the Septuagint, God says, ego I me. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was, ego I me, what is he saying? <laughs> right? Uh, and, and that's why I, I, think, I think it, I don't want to speak out of turn. Do you have, does anybody have an ESV here? I think the ESV, if it's not here, it elsewhere renders it rather limply. Um, I am he. I don't, maybe it's not here. I think it, may, it might be somewhere else in the ESV. Um, but, but at least here the, uh, the, King, the New King James that I was reading, gets the editors get it right. Um, it's, it's all caps, I am, before Abraham was, I am. So, yeah, that, that's, a, it's a, that's especially apparent in John's Gospel. Yeah. Um, in Matthew's Gospel, again, early on, it's... Uh, it's that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And that, of course, comes from the Old, Te the Old Testament, from this Isaiah 7, you know, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. He is Emmanuel, God with us, right? Okay. Yes? The timing. 
I can only conclude that this is a mysterious element that we're dealing with, the eternal God. Right, yes. So the, so the, I mean, the question or statement is... Right, that God is incomprehensible, yes. and that, yes, exactly right. So just to translate for those watching online, you know, our, our interaction, the incomprehensibility of God, that the way he can simply reveal to himself is, is I am, you know. You can flesh that out a little bit in the way of revelation. I am the one who was, who is, and who is always coming. Um, that kind of language attributed there most explicitly to the Father. of time and space, communicating himself to we who are inside time and space. Luther somewhere says, I've lost track of where, probably in his Genesis lectures, but I don't know, I'd have to go digging. Uh, some, somewhere describes that, that because God sits in eternity, all time and all space, they're simply, they're simply unfolding to us because we're in time and space. But if you are outside time and space, they've already already been created. It's all, all things are present. If you exist eternally, all things are present. Even put it like this. Conceptualize your timeline. You know, you're just simple chronology. You're born, you die, you know, the world begins, it goes towards its end, etc. Imagine God just being present all the way through and then being always present. Everything, therefore, everything's static to him. And so, so Luther, you know, Luther plainly says... I think I'm almost positive now it is the Genesis. That, that in Genesis, that we were made in Genesis you know, 1 and 2. That we were already present and, exi and extant then in the sense that God hath spoken. Right? It's not a continual speaking of God. It just sort of would appear poetically to be that because we're temporal creatures. But... Um, to God, all things would be known, all things would be unfolded, all things would be static before him. Yeah, as, as creatures, we can, we can sort of grasp and glimpse that, but never comprehend it and never wrap our minds around it. That as soon as you, I mean, comprehended the incomprehensible or wrapped your mind around God, you are putting yourself in the position of being God. And so we can know that that's a misstep. It is a profound thing that God would be with us, and I think I think some of our theological categories have a have a slightly misleading element to them, in that we think that this is alien to God, or this is unlike God. Where do we get that idea? It's actually not from the scriptures. It's more from this philosophical th distinction between the Creator and His creation that we are much more nervous about than apparently God is. Because as you see, the very end of the canonical scriptures, the climax of Revelation is the dwelling place of God is with man. There's, this is essential to God's nature and his very being. To become man isn't this alien thing. It's not as if God were sitting up there and says, oh no, those human beings have made a mistake. Now I have to become a human being to save them. This is going to be really kind of humiliating to put on humanity. That's, this, is, this is a completely alien way of thinking from the scriptures. The scriptures indicate that, I mean, in the garden, God walks with man and talks with man, communes with man, etc. 
all the way through. He continues to do that in many and various ways, climaxing in the incarnation, which then climaxes in his sacramental presence in our midst and the other modes of presence given to us in the New Testament, climaxing even further than in the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom which has no end, and, and thus then uh, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so this is quite, like, that's the thing, is, is Emmanuel, God with us, isn't like, it was never plan B, God isn't embarrassed about it, this is who God is. Yeah. Okay, so let's pick back up in scarce text at uh, page 23, and we are, oh, I don't know. It must be about eight lines from the top, eight or nine. The charge that Lutheran theology depends exclusively on John and Paul for its doctrine of the preexistence of Christ is without foundation. Uh, Werner Ehlert correctly says of Luther, one need read only a few of Luther's nearly 1,200 sermons on texts from the Gospels to realize that although he let Paul sharpen his view of Christ dogmatically, he took the picture of Christ himself from the Gospels and the basis of this picture brought proof that Christ was something different from the angry judge. Scare continues, the ancient concept of heavenly birth and an earthly birth for Jesus was picked up by Luther in the small catechism when he wrote, I believe in Jesus Christ, true God, born from the Father in eternity. Um, this, by the way, is in spades in... Uh, Augustine's Advent and Christmas sermons. I don't know if it's, uh, if, if it's before Augustine. It may well be, but that's the earliest I've personally found it. But Augustine loves this idea that the one who is begotten in eternity is then born or begotten in time and space. One of his favorite paradoxical contrasts. It's just really the whole intent of that theology is just to make you marvel and to rejoice in the the mystery, the majesty, the love and character of who our God is. So Luther picks up that same distinction as, as Scare is pointing out in the, in the Catechism where he is begotten from the Father in eternity and uh, born of the Virgin Mary, so thus true God and true man with these, with these two births, if you will. One birth begotten of God, the other birth begotten of, uh, or not begotten, but born of Mary. All right, Scare continues. The doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son from the Father does not teach a one-time action in the past as the Arians held, but is meant to describe a continuing, permanent, and hence eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. All right, so if I could clarify just very quickly, when we talk about only begotten, we're not talking about in eternity as if, as if this happened once. Remember the, the trunk and the branch? That's how it always is and always has been and always will be. Right? It, when we talk about his begottenness, we're talking about a present tense reality, an ever-present tense reality. This is just descriptive of his relationship to the Father. Yes? Okay, when it says here, born from the Father, uh -huh. is he saying something different instead of using begotten, like they usually? No, um, no. In the, in the, where Scare is saying that? Yeah, well, this Oh, it's from the small catechism. I oh, yes, yes, yes. I see. Born from the Father? 
Yeah, no. So the, so the question relates to the quotation of the catechism, which is a little different than our, our catechism. I, I noted that too. I believe in Jesus Christ, true God, born from the Father. In, our, in, the, moder- in the latest catechism, it's, I know for a fact it's begotten. It means nothing different. It's just, and I don't, know, I don't know what the German being used there is or how that relates to, you know, Augustine's Latin, I would assume. But the bottom line there is born and begotten are the same, the same thing, yeah. And the point for Luther, for Luther wasn't so much the, the technical language of, of born versus begotten. It was rather begotten of the Father before all worlds, begotten of his mother in this world born of the father before all worlds, born of, the, uh, of his mother Mary, you know, in this world. That, right? So in, that, in the way that Luther's using it, the language isn't technical and doesn't matter. Okay, um, so, yes? Yes, sir? Yeah. Ah, not far back. Yeah, yeah, very well said. I have no idea how I'm going to restate that exactly for the uh, for the people online. But suffice it to say, you can find this this language of the of the dual births as early as Irenaeus, and then in Irenaeus, it's uh, it's different. I, to use my own language, it's it's more collapsed together, such as the the begottenness from the Father and the and the birth are more are more united than they are presented here. Um, yeah, which I avoided going into that when we were going through the prologue, simply because it's like not just one more layer of complexity, but really an entire different paradigm of complexity. So, yeah, thank you for that comment. Okay, so uh, let's, let's simply drop back into the text with Scare here, if I can find where I left off. Looks like, looks like um, that paragraph right after the indented quotation... I'm going to just shoot for somewhere in the middle. The doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son from the Father does not teach a one-time action in the past, as the Arians held, but is meant to describe a continuing, permanent, and hence eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father shares his essence with the Son in such a way that the Father's deity is fully shared by the Son without suffering uh, diminution in the process. Jesus is God's Son, not only because he is preexistent, but also because he shares in the eternality of the Father. 
Yeah, I mean, to just state that very plainly, his relationship to the Father as Son in no way denigrates or demeans the Son. Um, they, are, they are eternal God, co-equal. And it's not, it's not merely a matter of pre-existence, but it's an ongoing sharing in the eternality of the Father. Yeah, so this is a, I mean, this is a whole different way to, to think and, a, and sort of rather a, a difficult way to think in because it's not, it's not innate or organic to us as, as fallen human beings. Um, again, we tend to think in a very linear, um, spatial kind of way. And that's, that's fine insofar as it goes. That would really actually be the main point I'd want to make is just because there's other way of looking at things doesn't negate the first way of looking at things. I mean, doesn't denigrate the first way of looking at things. Um, if so, you're going to have a real hard time without denigrating the faith of little children who view things very concretely and very spatially. But yeah, here, here you uh, really start to glimpse you start to glimpse it not really so much from the view of um, chronology, but the view that Christ has, uh, that, Jesus, that the Son of God is eternally present and manifest. And you even get this sense then that in the carnation, the humanity touches the eternality because it touches the divinity. And then that really changes the way you're able to think and speak about the person of Christ. Here's what we're really doing is we're looking at the machinery behind a, st a biblical statement like uh, that, that Jesus Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. How can you say that? And what way can you say that? Was he even, was he even enfleshed before the foundation of the world? How, how was he crucified if he wasn't enfleshed? You see, so what we're really doing is looking at the machinery behind that kind of biblical statement. Um, how is it that you can say that he was not only crucified but then enfleshed before the foundation of the world? You can't be crucified unless you're enfleshed. Um, one way to one way to grasp hold of that thinking is to see that in the incarnation, uh, the human the human nature touches the divine, touches the eternal, such that then. The incarnation and the crucifixion are eternal aspects in and of themselves. If you have that frame of reference, which that was in part what, what Vicar was referencing with Irenaeus, it'll really change the way you read the prologue to John's Gospel. The word becoming flesh probably has less to do with the incarnation and more to do with uh, his sacramental presence, his ongoing sacramental presence, as well as other aspects, really more the culmination of the Christ event. <clears throat> as opposed to the incarnation proper, because the incarnation proper can even be understood just simply in the revelation of the Logos. But again, now I'm introducing this whole other paradigm that's probably more confusing than helpful, especially at a point where we're trying to wrap our mind around difficult things already. So um, let's look then, we've got just a few minutes left. Let's look at uh, page 23, the last paragraph on that page. Confessional Lutheran theology recognizes that Jesus is one person or personality. Now, this is Im it's important to grasp this. We'll maybe return to this. When Scare's using the language of personality, he doesn't mean like 
but you like to fish or you, you know you like to sleep in on the weekends or you rather prefer the color purple to orange that's not what he means by personality personality might be like personhood or something like that right to be a person okay so um, Jesus is one person or personality but asserts that this person is the pre-existent Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He derives his eternal existence from God, and thus is God himself. However, only the Son is he who, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. According to the New Testament, the action is always initiated, quote-unquote, from above. As John says, the Word was made flesh. The Son of God is not changed in the incarnation, but he enters into a relationship which he has not personally experienced before. He becomes man. All right? So, in other words, um, viewing it from from our position of, of time and space, you say that the Son of God, the eternal Logos, the Word, it's not that he changes in the incarnation. Um, he, he is who he always is. But rather now, in the incarnation, he enters into a relationship which he has not personally experienced before. That's viewing it from the vantage point of time and space. He becomes man. Okay? In the Incarnation, the Son of God assumed human flesh, but, he did, uh, but did he then assume a human personality? Now, again, personality here really isn't being used in the sense of like whether or not he likes kittens. This is really like a, a, human, a human personhood, okay? This is a little bit technical, and it gets fleshed out as we go along, so just work with me here. But did he then assume a human personality? Or stated another way, did the Son of God join himself to an autonomous human person when he became man? There's the key. Autonomous. Because then then you have a human person who is completely autonomous, like like you or I are human persons who are autonomous, Okay? And then you've got the, the Son of God, the pre-existent Logos, who is autonomous. And then in the Incarnation, you simply put these two autonomous persons together. How many persons do you have? That's the problem. And so what you, what you have here is really in view, as, as Scare will flesh out and as we'll get to next week, you really have here a confession over and against Nestorianism, where you've got... You know, this theology that works not as, not as true God and true man in one person, but really it ends up being two persons. Also in view here is sort of a subset, which is a kind of adoptionism. As if you've got this, this autonomous individual person named Jesus of Nazareth, and then this individual autonomous son of God, and the son of God just sort of adopts this person, Jesus, to do his will. Almost kind of like, you might conceptualize it in one way, kind of like a puppet. (laughs) You know, there's the son of God who's just sort of the puppet master over this person that he's adopted. This is what we're confessing against here. So don't get too bogged down in the technical language. Just realize um, we want to end up saying that the son of God 
and the, that is the divine nature and the human nature are one person. Right? That's the key. And then we're going to describe how they are uh, one person in, in some technical language there. Uh, so let's, let's just press on a little bit further. Um, the scriptural and, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the incarnation, the Son of God took on flesh, but not another personality. That is not another personhood, such that there are now two persons. Okay, therefore, the human nature of Christ is different from any other human nature in a negative sense by uh, anhupostasia, yeah, anhupostasia, having no personality of his own, and in a positive sense by anhupostasia, subsisting entirely of the divine personality. Okay, what this is trying to describe is when you have the human and divine natures come together, they come together such that there is one person. And when you describe that from the human angle, you say he's without his own personal, without his own person subsisting in and of himself. He's not autonomous. Okay? It's not an adoption of Jesus. Only, only in the whole person of Christ do you have the divine and human come together such that there is one person. When you view that from the, the human angle, then in a negative sense you end up with anhupostasia, that is having no personhood or personality of his own. When you look at it in a positive sense, it is enhupostasia, that is, the divine personhood is what gives it its unifying personhood. Okay. Because why? Because the divine personhood is what exists and ex has existed from all eternity. You see, it's not, it's not, this, it's not as if it's this ex nihilo, out-of-nothing creation of Jesus out of this person, Jesus, okay? But the divine Son of God, who is a full person, has personhood, okay? In what way is he incarnate? Well, he's incarnate in such a way that he, with man, not that he becomes two persons, not that he adopts another person, but that he becomes the personhood of the humanity, right? Um, or rather, to speak of it in the other direction, he assumes humanity into himself. But do you notice the self, the self, the personhood, is that of the Son of God, not the human. And that's really all we're confessing here. I know it gets technical, I know it gets a little hard to wrestle, but just in the background we're confessing against Nestorianism and adoptionism and these kinds of blatant heresies. That's all that's going on here. Okay, well that's all the time we have for today. Um, We'll pick back up, we'll just sort of review, see if you have any questions on this section. We'll motor along and see all the more how this does in fact have to do with Nestorianism and adoptionism. As you know from reading the chapter, Scare has uh, some very, uh, very insightful critiques of reformed Christology and spends uh, some amount of time going on through that. Let's just, let's just say we're still going to get through the end of three. Um, at most we get a touch into four, but that's it. The Lord be with you.